Good morning. Today, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to look into the wonderful pages of your word where your son, Jesus Christ, is so manifested in each aspect of the salvation that he's wrought for us. We ask that today that the message would come forth and would be that which glorifies our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and gives a greater understanding to us of who he is and what he's done on the pages of this book and in the reality of our lives. We ask this in our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today is going to be the first of two teachings that I've been asked to do, and, and I'm always very thankful for the time when I get to teach. But today is going to be the, the first of two different teachings. And this is going to be, they're going to cohere together. This is actually part four on our series in the firstborn. But this is going to be the firstborn, part four, and Passover. So it's going to have a little different twist to it. And you may want to, if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn to Hebrews 11, specifically verse 28. Also have your ribbon or post-it note, whatever you want to do, in Exodus 12, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 16. Those are the passages that we're really going to be in today. So in this current study that we've been exploring, we've been exploring the passages in the New Testament which talk about the firstborn. And that Greek word is prototokos. That transliteration of that word in the, into the English is spelled P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. And as I said, it means firstborn. I was originally planning on going through, in my idea of how I was going to approach this, I was going to go through these passages in order, but the Holy Spirit has a different idea, and we need to follow his ideas, and his leading, rather. We need to follow his leading, because if we tried to build the house on our own, then it's not going to stand, as the scripture says in Psalm 127.1, if the Lord doesn't build the house, then the one who builds labors in vain. So I've been directed as of late. My focus has really been directed by the Spirit towards the Passover. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the word prototokos, which is firstborn, but we're going to do it in a passage which has the Passover in it as well, in Hebrews 11.28, where both the Passover and firstborn are used together in this same verse. In Hebrews 11, the chapter that the author is describing those who walk by faith in the Old Testament, 
Within that chapter, Hebrews 11:23 through 29 is dealing specifically with Moses. Now, our base passage and everything that we're going to be covering in the next two messages will be dealing with what is going on in Hebrews 11:28, and which is located within that section talking about Moses. Therefore, I'm going to start by giving my translation of this verse from the Greek. My translation, by faith, he, that is Moses, instituted the Passover and the pouring of the blood in order that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The word for firstborn, and this is prototokos as it has been in our series, I'll spell it again, P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. And in this verse, in this verse, prototokos is in the plural in the Greek, indicating, according to the context, that the author is referring to the firstborn males, both human and animals in Egypt, who were killed by the Lord during the 10th plague. I want to stress that. They were killed by the Lord during the, the 10th plague. Exodus 11, 4 and 5 speak about that. So does Exodus 12, 12, Psalm 135, verse 8 even. And that's just to name a few places because this is actually mentioned a lot of times in the Old Testament. Now, I want to stress this again. It was Yahweh himself, Yahweh himself who struck down the firstborn, as is seen in another verse in Exodus 12, 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. That was Hebrews, or, sorry, that was Exodus 12.29. Now, the Holman Christian Standard Bible has an interesting note on a different verse, but I want to read the note first because I think the note gives definition to us in understanding the verse that I'm going to read after I read the note. They have an interesting note on Exodus 12.23. And it's speaking about the destroyer entering into the houses. Quote from the Holman Christian Standard Bible notes, this is a quote, the description of the death of the firstborn say nothing more about the destroyer, nor do they indicate how the humans or the animals died. The Lord's sovereign activity was the issue. And he presented himself as bringing about the deaths. Now, the verse to which that note goes in coordination with is Exodus 12:23. And that verse says, "For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. And he will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
The reason why I stress this point is that some take this to mean destroyer, as it was translated in the verse that I read from the English Standard Version, while others take it to mean destruction, such as in Young's literal translation. It means destruction. It doesn't mean destroyer. Either way, if the Lord did it by his own hand or if he sent the destroying angel, the fact of the matter remains that it was Yahweh who had the power to destroy, and without him, there was no destruction. So the question is, why? The question I want you to ask yourself, the question I asked me, myself, was why? Why did Yahweh kill all the firstborn males, both animal and beast, in the land of Egypt, who didn't have the blood on their doorpost that night? Well, we obviously know that it was the 10th plague, and it could be said that it was the, the, the plague that tipped the scales. So he took off the gloves, as it were, in this plague. But Why? Why did he specifically kill the firstborn? That's the question. In line with this question, there's an interesting passage in Psalm 136, 10 and 11. And that's speaking about the Lord with reference to this night in Egypt. This psalm has 26 verses. Psalm 136 does. The psalm has 26 verses, and at the end of each verse, the phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, is said. Now, if we have the corrective lenses of the Spirit, the 26 verses of Psalm 136 can be seen as an abridged account of the entire Bible. And near the middle of this psalm, We find these two verses which speak directly to our passage in Hebrews 11.28. This is speaking about the Lord in Psalm 136, verses 10 and 11. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord killed the firstborn males in Egypt, both man and beast, and his steadfast love endures forever? It almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, his steadfast love sure seemed like it endured forever for Israel there. But did it endure for the firstborns that he slay and their families? I hope to demonstrate an insight during the next two messages, and it's going to dovetail with what Pastor Knapp has been teaching in his Hebrew series. And my hope is that you'll see how the Lord's steadfast love is demonstrated and lavished upon all of creation by the slaying of the firstborn spoken about in Hebrews 11.28 here in our passage. It's lavished upon all creation, his steadfast love. And if you are attentive to these two next two teachings, the question of why he did it will be answered for you. And it's going to clear up why 
it looks like it's such a harsh thing, but it's not. So with that said, and with the question in our mind of why he killed the firstborn, and how does his steadfast love endure forever in an agreement with that, With that in our forefront of our minds, let me read again my translation of Hebrews 11.28. By faith, he, that is Moses, instituted the Passover and the pouring of the blood in order that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, the first thing we need to comprehend in order to gain understanding about this passage in Hebrews is the Passover. We have to understand the Passover to to gain any kind of real understanding of the depth of what's going on in this particular passage. And to do that, we're going to turn back to Exodus, where God commands Moses to institute the Passover in the land of Egypt. So Exodus is where we're going. Moses spoke with Pharaoh in Exodus 11. And he told him of the tenth and final plague, which was going to come upon Egypt. Now, after this plague, Pharaoh was going to let the Israelites go with all their young and old and with all their cattle and flocks. Now, that's pretty specific because during the other plagues, after a plague happened, Pharaoh would say, okay, well, the males can go out and worship. God, but everybody else has to stay back. Or, okay, your your males and your females can go out and worship, but your little ones have to stay back. This one, after the 10th plague, after the 10th and final plague, he didn't care who went. He just said, get out, go. So after this plague, He would let all of them go, including their cattle and their flocks. And they would also leave with the riches of Egypt because the Egyptians would give them their gold and silver just to get them to leave. Moses, by the direction of God, told the Israelites to ask the Egyptians for their gold and silver, and they did not say no. They said, take them and leave. And so in the process of this, God not only freed Israel from Egypt, the bondage and the slavery of Egypt, but he plundered Egypt as well and made Israel rich at that time. In Exodus 12, passage of which I said to keep ready, The Lord instructs Moses of a new calendar. This is very important. A new calendar, which Israel would now implement. The month of Abib, A-B-I-B. Abib, the month of Abib. Which was later, during Israel's exile, called Nisan, N-I-S-A-N. That would become the first month of the year for them. I don't want you to be confused about what I just said. 
Abib was the Hebrew name for this first month. But when Israel was in the captivity of Babylon and Persia, they adopted the foreign word for this month, which is Nisan. And this can be seen in Nehemiah 2.1 and Esther 3.7, and it gives reference to this. So if you're ever reading or studying the scriptures and you see the month of Nisan, which a lot of commentaries, a lot of exegetes refer to the first month of the year as Nisan. They don't refer to it all the time as a bib. It could be either a bib or Nisan. I hope that's clear. So it... But if you're ever reading and you're studying and, and you see the, the month Nisan, then you'll know that it coincides. It's the same month, the first month of the year in the Jewish calendar, which is also called Abib in the Hebrew. So as I said, in Exodus 12.2, the Lord says to Moses, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And this first month is later identified in Exodus 13, 4 as Abib. That's the name of it. Abib, or also called Nisan, is the month when God freed Israel from the slavery of Egypt. Therefore, this is important, therefore, this was such a huge event that the Lord changed the calendar of Israel to start its year on the month when they left Egypt. He changed their whole calendar. And he said, this is going to be the beginning of your year. In other words, Abib slash Nisan is like our January. However, it doesn't fall in that time. It actually falls in March and April, according to our calendar. I hope I'm not completely confusing people. But sufficient to say, God changed their calendar. And he said, this is going to be when you start your year. This was such a huge event that he changed their whole calendar to start right then in the month of Abib. Now on the 14th day of the month of Abib was when God instituted or he instructed Moses to institute the Passover. Now at this point, I want to read Exodus 12, 1 through 13. It's a, it's a lengthy passage, but I want to read it so that you get the whole context of what's being said here. And then we're going to look at some additional elements which were commanded to coincide with the Passover, both at this time and later on, but then we're, there's, we're going to look at a few different aspects that were altered by God when Israel would enter the promised land. Now, this is all essential in our understanding of Hebrews 11.28, especially with regards to Jesus Christ and him being the complete reality of what is actually taking place here. So with that said, I'll read Exodus 12, 1 through 13. Now, this is the English Standard Version. I use that a lot in my teachings, by the way, the English Standard Version. It's, it's, it's pretty decent translation. 
But to to be candid with you, it's one of the better translations that I have available to me on my computer, so I can copy and paste this in here, 13 verses, instead of typing it all out from either the Home and Christian Standard Bible or something. So it's kind of me saying I'm cheating a little bit. <laughs> Exodus 12, 1 through 3, English Standard Version. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, and if he and his nearest neighbor shall take account to the number of persons according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Very important. Kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. It's head and its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning shall be burned. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So here, in Exodus 12, we have the initial Passover, which was instituted by Moses, as directed by God. And it was to protect Israel from having their firstborn males destroyed. Or, as said another way, slain by the Lord that night. Now Moses goes on to say in this chapter that this shall be a memorial or a day to remember for you. And you shall keep it throughout all your generations. So every year on the 10th, these dates are extremely important. Every year on the 10th of Abib, 
the Israelites were to take an unblemished lamb from the flock and set it aside. Then on the 14th day of Abib, they were to kill the lamb at twilight. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, they describe twilight as, quote, the interval between the sun's beginning to decline and sunset, corresponding to our three o'clock in the afternoon. So when the sun is beginning to decline and the sunset, it corresponds to our, our three o'clock in the afternoon. So then they were to kill it at twilight. Then the blood of the lamb was to be applied to the lentil and both doorposts using a bunch of hyssop. This was evidence that the members of the household were identified with the substitute sacrifice, which was the unblemished lamb. That lamb took the place of those in the household so that the Lord would pass over and death would not come into that household. It was a substitute for them, that lamb. Then the lamb was to be roasted and eaten. Whatever wasn't able to be eaten by morning was to be burned. Therefore, the sacrificial lamb was totally consumed. And it was consumed by morning. Nothing shall be left by morning. It was totally consumed by morning, either by those who ate of it or by the fire that was strictly said by God that you shall not let of it, yet not let... <laughs> Any of it remain until morning. And if any of it does, you have to burn it with fire. Nothing shall be left because it was holy to the Lord. It wasn't something to be discarded and thrown away afterwards. That night of Passover didn't stand alone, but it was always followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's extremely important. The Feast of Unleavened Bread always followed Passover. And within the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was a day, a specific day called the Day of Firstfruits. These things were always intimately connected. Starting on the 14th of Abib and going through the 21st, the Israelites were to have no leaven in their houses. They were to eat unleavened bread with the Passover. And this was to continue, this eating of the unleavened bread was to continue for seven days, Exodus 12, 18. In Exodus 12, 39, it says that they baked unleavened cakes. They baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. This was something that happened in a hurry. Now, this was to commemorate them leaving Egypt, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Commemorate them leaving Egypt in a hurry. But as all of this does, as all of this does, it signifies something far greater in the reality, which is Christ. The first day of unleavened bread was to be a holy convocation, as was the seventh. 
on these days, they were to do no ordinary work except for the preparing of food in Exodus 12, 16. Now, a convocation, a convocation was a gathering of the people for the worship of the Lord. Interestingly, the Greek word used in the Septuagint for convocation is kletos. And the transliteration into the English is K-L-E-T-O-S, kletos, which Thayer defines as being invited to a banquet. Gingrich also agrees in his lexicon, and he speaks of an invitation to a meal. Kletos, now it can also denote being called, such as in Romans 1.1, where Paul says a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Called there is kletos. It can also mean that. However, in the context of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it seems more reasonable that it would refer to being invited to a meal or a banquet. At least I think so. And as I stated, on this day, no ordinary work was to be done except for the preparation of food. That was it. Now, there are seven of these holy convocations throughout the Jewish year. Seven of them. And these days are days of rest in addition to the weekly Sabbaths. This can be clearly seen in Leviticus 23, where the Lord speaks to Moses about these days and when each was to happen during the year for Israel in these specific celebrations to the Lord. As the Lord was speaking to Moses in Leviticus 23, 2, he says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. He then begins explaining the weekly Sabbaths and proceeds into the Passover in Leviticus 23. And the Passover, which I said was intimately connected to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Feast of Unleavened Bread, which he also covers in this. Passover, Passover is on the 14th day of the month of Abib. This is when the lamb was to be slain and not a bone of it was to be broken in Exodus 12, 46. The lamb, remember, the lamb was to be totally consumed that night. None of it was to remain until the morning in Exodus 12, 8, and 10. After this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the reason why I said none of it was to remain until the morning, because there are some exegetes, I think, who get a little... They've, they've gotten off track, and in my opinion, I don't want to sound like I'm some authority, but the way the Spirit is 
given me to understand there are some exegetes that have gotten off track and they think that the lamb was slaughtered on the 14th and it wasn't consumed until the 15th. But it seems to me, according to what I have seen from the word, that none of it was to remain until the morning. So it was to be consumed that night. So I make that a point. But after this, after the Passover, after this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began on the 15th of Abib and went through the 21st. Both the 15th and the 21st of Abib were holy convocations to the Lord. No ordinary work was to be done. It's extremely important. Extremely important. As I said at the beginning of Leviticus 23, God begins with the weekly Sabbath. He begins with the weekly Sabbath in verse 6, or verse, verse 3, saying, Six days shall work be done. On the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwelling places. This is important because in Leviticus 23, 10 and 11, the scriptures say, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, that is the promised land, when you come into the land that I give you and reap a harvest, you shall bring forth the sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. And this is to be done on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. After the weekly Sabbath, the day after the weekly Sabbath was the day of first fruits. Now this is, now the specific Sabbath that he's referring to here is the weekly Sabbath. The holy convocation, which takes place I'm sorry, it's the weekly Sabbath after the Holy Convocation, which takes place on the 15th of Abib. That being the first day of unleavened bread. I hope I'm not losing you on all of this because this is all extremely important in our understanding of what we're going to cover in the next message. Being that the 15th, so let me, let me clarify this a little bit. The 15th of Abib was the first day of unleavened bread. The 14th was the Passover. Intimately connected. Sometimes they were referred to by the same name. In the gospel, sometimes they, they talk about the feast of unleavened bread is coming up, referring to the Passover. Or they refer to Passover, and they're talking about the whole feast as well. So they're intimately connected. But the, the 15th of Abib was the first day of unleavened bread. It was a holy convocation to the Lord. No ordinary work was to be done, no matter what day of the week that it fell upon. Now, being that the 15th could fall on any day of the week, depending on the year, because it always fell on the 15th, it could be any day of the week. 
in that specific year. The weekly Sabbath, which was set for Saturday, it never changed. It was always Saturday. In the Jewish calendar, the weekly Sabbath was always Saturday. Being that the 15th could fall on any day of the week, depending on the year, the weekly Sabbath, which was set for Saturday, could be a day or two or more away from the 15th. Meaning, if the 15th, which is the first day of unleavened bread, if the 15th, the first day of unleavened bread, fell on a Monday, hypothetical, fell on a Monday, then the weekly Sabbath would be five days away. And the day of first fruits would be on that Sunday. So it could change depending on the year. They could be closer together, the Passover, the day of unleavened or the, the, the feast of unleavened bread starting, and then the day of first fruits could be closer or it could be further apart, depending on the year. My point is that there wasn't always the same amount of time between the first day of unleavened bread and the 15th of a bib, which was on the 15th of a bib. I'm sorry, the first day of unleavened bread on the 15th of a bib, and the day of first fruits, which followed the next weekly Sabbath. Now, all of this may seem extremely disjointed and probably confusing to some, but I assure you, it's extremely necessary for the understanding to come in our next message. Extremely necessary. Even as Jesus told his disciples when he was on the verge of his betrayal by Judas in John 14, 29, I've told you, I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, that you'll believe. So I'm telling you these things today to give you a background so that when we hit the New Testament, and we're going to hit it running in our next message, when we hit it, you're going to have a background and you're going to understand, oh, this is why this is, this is why he's saying this here. This is why he's saying this here. It's going to make way more sense then. So hang in there. What I'm doing today is laying groundwork for us to go into the New Testament. So that when we get there, you'll have a fresh background in your mind of what's been fulfilled or brought to complete reality in Christ Jesus. When we don't see Christ as the reality of these things fulfilled from the Old Testament, when we don't see him as the reality of of these things in the Old Testament, then we're confused and perplexed as to why certain things were done or mandated by God. It doesn't make sense to us when we don't see Christ in it. And this is why many people who miss the point that the Bible is all about Christ on every page, they tend to view God in two different ways. They think that there's one God of the Old Testament which is harsh and wrathful. And another God of the New Testament, which is loving and forgiving. And they fail to see that the same God of the Old Testament came and died for all on the cross. 
The vital point that they miss is that the Lord is working out his perfect plan, which will be accomplished in Isaiah 46.10. He's doing, he's working out his plan, which will be accomplished while alongside of humans and their volitional choices in time. It's a masterful plan that he has. And he does it within human volitional choices. I think that's pretty cool. Therefore, the line to the Messiah, which carried our precious or carried the precious seed of Jesus, needed to be preserved. In order for him to accomplish the Father's will that was set from eternity past. But he would accomplish that will in time. So what may seem harsh with some of the things which took place in the Old Testament was really the mercy of God. Towards those people who were trying to destroy the line to the Messiah, it was really the mercy of God towards them. Because if the Messiah had never been born, then he wouldn't have been able to become the propitiation for our sins. But not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world in 1 John 2. 2. That includes the very people in the Old Testament who are trying to destroy the precious seed. Which would be the coming Christ. It includes those very people. For Christ Jesus, having accomplished the redemption of all on the cross, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will remain there until, until the time when he comes to restore all things, according to Acts 3.21. And at that time, what Isaiah 19.25 says will come to be. The Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Here in Isaiah 19, God explicitly states that he will restore these nations which were destroyed by him. He destroyed, he plundered Egypt, but he says, I'm going to restore them. Blessed is Egypt, my people. All the restoration, the restoration will come through the cross. All restoration comes through the cross of Christ. And it's effective for all people of all times. So it's actually the mercy of God in these situations where it seems harsh in the Old Testament because he's preserving that line. Put John 6.37 together with John 17.2. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out in John 6.37. And Jesus, in speaking to his Father in John 17.2, says, since you have given me all You have given me 
authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given me. (laughs) That's pretty plain. That's pretty plain. Nothing falls through the cracks with the Lord. For everything is summed up in Christ in Ephesians 1.10. Really read Colossians 1.15 through 20 sometime. Really read it and see what it's saying and think about it. The same all things that are spoken of in verses 15 through 19. Those same all things are the same all things that are reconciled to God by the blood of Christ's cross, which is a metonymy for his substitutionary death. Therefore, all the background that we're covering today is essential to our understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. Not just in the sense of this was done in the Old Testament so Jesus needed to fulfill such and such a thing. We're thinking about it the wrong way then. We're thinking about it the wrong way. It needs to be in the reverse in our minds. What the Trinity plan in eternity past for Jesus Christ to accomplish was demonstrated by types and events which took place in the Old Testament in order to teach us and also the people at that time of the finished work of our Lord, Jesus Christ, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. So the isagogics, or the history that we're looking at today, adds to our understanding of Christ and his finished work. And without it, without it, you're only going to have a partial understanding of what he accomplished because the things aren't going to click as they will if you understand what we're covering today. That being said, of why we did what we did today, that being said, I want to bring in one more aspect of the Passover in Deuteronomy 16. Now, I said earlier that there were some additional commands which were given about the Passover when Israel was to enter the promised land some distinctions that God put into place. Deuteronomy is spoken by Moses when Israel was on the verge of the promised land, and Yahweh was giving a distinction from the original Passover, which took place in Egypt. He's giving a little distinction here in Deuteronomy 16. Remember, when Israel was in Egypt, this was before they had the law and the priest. So every household was to take the lamb. The head of the household was to take the lamb and slay it. And if it was the household was too small, they joined with their neighbors. But it was the heads of the household. Now, now here in Deuteronomy, because they have the Levitical priesthood now, Now that Israel is functioning under the authority of the Levitical priesthood for sacrifices in Deuteronomy, the Lord makes a change to where the Passover lamb is to be sacrificed. They no longer 
were to slay the lamb in their homes. They weren't supposed to do that anymore. God tells them in Deuteronomy 16, 5 through 6, you may not offer the Passover sacrifices with any of, within any of your towns that the Lord is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset, at the time when you came out of Egypt. The place where the Lord chose to have his name dwell was in Jerusalem, specifically in the temple. In Second Chronicles 6, 10. This is the place where the Passover lambs were to be sacrificed. Very important point in interpreting the Old Testament. Or in, in interpreting the New Testament with regards to Passover. Very important point. This is indeed important in the aspects we will be dealing with in our next message. And my prayer is that the groundwork which was laid today will be extremely profitable in giving understanding in our next message and that Christ will be glorified by the hearing of it. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus Christ is on every page of the Bible and we just need to have the eyes to see him in these things. We ask that you would do just that today, that you would allow and you would give understanding through your spirit, your Holy Spirit today, by means of what was spoken. We ask these things and we pray them in Christ's name. Amen.